The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week, the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in a lower middle-class family with an identical twin sister. She was an A student in school and knew by the time she reached college, she wanted to be a doctor. Her parents had taught her that she could do anything she dreamed of, so off to medical school she went. When it came time to choose her medical specialty, she chose radiology, a field few women pursued. By the time she completed her training, she was a mother of two. And it was as a mother, she saw how others began to decide what was enough for her and where they thought her priorities should be. But she pushed forward, and today she is walking her path to greatness as a prominent radiologist specializing in pediatric and breast imaging. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Lauren Golding. Hi, Lauren. Thank you for joining me today. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. And you have so much wisdom I want to explore. So let's just jump right on in. So you are a competent, highly trained medical professional, yet are often told by others not to forget your role as a mother. So are the same comments offered to your male colleagues who are fathers? And how do you handle these comments? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's something we talked about before. And I'll start by saying I, I do have some male colleagues who told me they had the same comments. So I don't think it's exclusive to women, but I definitely think there's some asymmetry there from societal expectations on a woman's role as a mother. I've, along my career path, had several, I think, well-meaning, generally male people uh, tell me that, uh, you know, you may, maybe want to scale back a little bit on your involvement on national radiology, or maybe you should... Uh, reconsider some leadership opportunities and maybe delay those a little bit later until your kid's a little bit older. And it's interesting because it's always presented in like this benevolent advice, um, you know, like they're trying to look out for me and, and do the right thing for me. Yeah. But when you really look at it, you think you know, women are extremely capable of making our own decisions. We're, you know, we, we run households, we run businesses, we do all these things. It would be nice to afford women the same opportunity to make their own decisions about their career paths. And, you know, I, I usually say something like, you know, I really appreciate the advice. Sometimes if they really pushed it, I'll say, you know, no offense, but I would like to reserve the right to make my own decisions about my career path. Usually it's easier just to, you know, smile and say thank you. But uh, if, if someone that I really feel like is pushing, pushing their buttons and, and trying to uh, limit what my potential would be, then I, then I may come back and just, you know, polite, politely say, I'd like to make those my choices. And I think other women should be able to do that too. So I'm going to stay with this for a second because I think there is a real lesson here for those listening. And that is that often we as women do just smile and say nothing. And I'm not sure that's serving us in terms of educating others about where we are and what we can offer to the world. And I like it when you say that you can politely say, I appreciate the advice, but I can make my own decisions. And as a woman, I have the ability to do that. And I think that other women need to not let things pass so quickly because change doesn't come when we just let it slide. I agree with that. And in some ways, I do think there's two different ways to show that. One's in words and one's in actions. And so it may be a point where it's not really worth getting into a confrontation with someone, but you better believe I'm going to go right ahead and you know, be on the board of chancellors at the ACR. I'm going to go ahead and be a leader in my practice and you know, take their advice with a grain of salt and still do my own thing. And I think that speaks volumes as well as you know, even just the, the word wording choice. So yeah, there's there's other ways to um 
tackle that and should model that for other women. And I like that. I like that you're you're pointing out that we can have different ways that we show up, but we do need to show up, don't we? So mommy guilt is a real issue for many women leaders. And you're a mother of three girls now. So do you experience this guilt? And if so, how do you manage it so it doesn't eat you up inside? Mommy guilt is it's huge and real. And I think it's uh, there's probably not a single working mother in the world that doesn't feel it or stay at home mother. I think it's universal, but it's pervasive. I mean, when you're at work, you're thinking uh, in the back of your mind, oh, well, I, I should be doing this with my kids. When you're with your kids, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm ne- neglecting this task at work. And there's never really a sense of uh, I don't know, a full balance. You hear about work-life balance, just it, it doesn't exist. There's not enough hours in the day to do it all the way you would really like to do, especially for high achievers. It was very bad when my kids were infants and really needed me on a you know, material needing kind of level. Um, it's gotten better as I've seen them grow up. I think I've matured as a mother. And really, probably the big pendulum swing for me is as I've seen growing up, I see what I want for them when they grow up. And I want those girls to know that they can grow up, they can be successful professionals, they can be great mothers, they can do it all. And that they shouldn't feel limited by that. And if they sense for me that I'm constantly feeling like I'm not a great mother because I have a job uh, or that, you know, I'm not good at what I do because I'm a mom, then you know, I feel like that limits them in some way. And that's not the mindset I want for them. So really, that's been the big adjustment for me is that, you know, I want to model for them what I want for them when they grow up. So it's, it's helped a lot with the guilt. Yeah. And I've heard that from other professional women on this platform, that that's how they've reconciled it in their mind, that they can play both worlds and use that as a place to teach their children what the role and the value that women can bring to society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a difference between quality time and quantity time too. I mean, I may not be at home 10 hours a day with my kids, but when I'm there, I try to really focus on them, really work on learning with them and spending time with them, listening to them. Um, I think you're more intentional about that when you put your focus on it. And since I have limited time outside of my job there, then I really do work hard to make that time quality time. And that's important too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So early in your career, you got passed over for leadership roles because you were viewed as being too young. And they all agreed that you were more than qualified. So how did you deal with this? And then the second part of this, what advice would you give to other young women that are told they're too young for a role? Well, it's interesting because I was told that I was too young. They were basically too new to the job that, you know, I'd only been there a couple of years and that people had full confidence in my abilities, but maybe I just needed to be around for a few more years to kind of prove myself and become a little bit, uh, I guess, older and wiser. And one person even suggested that I not even interview for the position because I might get my feelings hurt if I didn't get it. So that was slightly offensive, but I just you know, kept going, continued to you know, put my name in the hat for the position. And I just kept being valuable to the company and kept trying to make myself indispensable and, and do the best work I could. And then two and a half, three years later, the position was open again and uh, uh, able to be elected into the leadership position in the practice. So you know, my advice would be to just don't give up, keep going, keep proving yourself. I feel like sometimes women may have to work a little bit harder to do that in certain in certain roles. And uh, yeah, just, just don't give up. Don't let any of it get to you. You just got to keep showing yourself to be valuable in, in as many ways as you can. And that's where uh, being a part of a tribe of women that are like-minded does help, doesn't it? Because sometimes we need somebody, another voice in our ear saying, you got this girl, you keep going. Yeah, I do. I think that that's important. I think male advocates are also important. You know, I have several in my life and I'm in a male dominated 
specialty in radiology and there just aren't enough women to have a tribe and there's just not physically enough numbers of them. So yeah, I want to marginalize the role of supportive males either. And certainly I've had many, many advocates along the way that have told me, look, you're good enough. Don't don't let anyone, what anyone says, get you down. You're, you're the exact right person for this role. So both ways are very helpful and, and really necessary for women's leadership. I think. Yeah, I think I agree with you 100%. So we're going to talk, go into the space of risk-taking a little bit, because risk-taking is something women often shy away from. So I'm curious as to why, your opinion of why you think this is, and, and how do you decide what risk to take? I think risk-taking is, is extremely important. It's something I try to teach my children and that I try to teach um, mentees that I have. You do have to be smart about the risks, obviously, but you're never going to get anywhere in life if you're perfectly comfortable with where you are or you're so afraid of some kind of change that you're not willing to innovate or change um, what you're doing. And uh, for me, I honestly was, I guess, a born risk taker. My mom jokes that she called, always called me as a child a well-mannered rule breaker because I would, you know, I'd see, see the sign that says don't climb on this. And I would think, well, am I really going to get hurt on climbing this? I think I'm probably okay. And so she says that I, one time I said, does that, does that rule apply to me? As if, you know, I were somehow you know, above, above the rules. You know, she, she makes fun of me for it, but I did it in a way that wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to have bodily harm or do something that was going to hurt someone else. But yeah, I think those calculated risks are just vital to uh, success, especially professionally, but really in, in all of life. And, you know, I, I try to look at risks as an opportunity to innovate in your life, to do something new in advance. And, you know, you can't see failure as the end of the world. So you try something new and it doesn't work well. And, you know, you move on and try the next new thing. Um, you just have to balance the consequences so that if you do fail, it's not completely you know, catastrophic and that you have kind of a baseline to start back from. Um, and that's what life is. It's just kind of a series of trying new things, taking new risks and trying to make yourself better. You know, and you said something that really landed well with my way of looking at the world, because I, like you, feel like if I don't take risk, I'm not really enjoying life. But I do, in my mind, sometimes play the what if game. All right. If I take this risk, what's the worst that can happen? And because our mind conjures up these things that aren't real. And most times you take risks, they're not going to kill you. And preferably, you don't take a risk where you put everything on the line and lose all your life savings. So that's probably not a good risk. But maybe I lose a few thousand. Okay, I can I can deal with that. So, you know, it's it is interesting the mind games we play around risk. Yeah, I agree with that. And sometimes it's not just money. It's a risk with your time. What do I want to invest my time in or what I want to you know, invest my relationships in? And, and all that's kind of a way more, more of that balancing we were talking about, kind of that equation you're always calculating in your head. What's the worst that can happen? What's the best alternative to what I'm doing now? Um, and it's you know ongoing negotiation and you just do the best you can with what you have. And when you play that mind game, often we as women forget to look at the other side of the coin and say, well, if I take this risk, what is the best that could happen? Because when you serve that up, you get pretty excited and you say, oh, my gosh, what if that was the outcome? You're absolutely right. I think that maybe women more than men look at the worst case scenario because, you know, we're more risk in general risk averse and we, you know, we want to protect things. And what's the, what's the worst that can happen? I have to make sure that doesn't happen. But yeah, looking at the counter, what's the, what's the best that can come out of this? It's another another thing I tell my kids. You know, what what if you you know take tennis lessons and you're awesome at it and you love it? You know, isn't that a little bit better than oh you hate it and you don't want to do it anymore? So yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point that you made. And before we leave this risk thing, I know from our our conversation prior that you were definitely a people pleaser, 
in your risk-taking analysis, do you ever still wonder about what people will think of you if you don't do well? I've gotten much, much better about that as I got older. Um, as a child, I wanted my parents happy with me. I wanted the teachers happy with me. I wanted, you know, just to be the, I guess I was a goody two-shoes in many ways. Um, <laughs> as I've gotten older and seen, seen the benefits of those risk-taking, you know, it's, People are going to think what people are going to think. And I, I, I've pretty much done a 180 on that. I mean, I'm still a people pleaser in that I, I want the people around me to be happy. And I have a hard time picking a dinner restaurant because I, I'm afraid I'm going to pick something that somebody's not going to like. But in my professional life, you know, I, you, you take risks, you do the right thing, and everybody else can, you know, they can join or they can not join. So it's, it's that, that's changed a little bit about my personality as I've gotten older. like yourself often struggle with the imposter syndrome. Do you experience this and does it keep you from going for things? I experience it. Um, I wouldn't say that it keeps me from going for things. In a lot of ways, it motivates me, I think, to continue to pursue new things and and new challenges. I I still find myself even in current roles feeling like, oh, you know, I don't quite know everything I should know about this or I must, must not be as qualified as did other person who has the same title in another group. But, you know, slowly after many episodes of feedback where you realize you actually do have those skills and you are just as capable as those people, you get the confidence that you need. Um, you and I discussed this. I don't know that imposter syndrome is a terrible thing. I think it's one of the things that may make women better leaders in some sense that we always have a little bit more maybe humility about us that we think that there always is more to learn. There is ways to improve. You never think that you're, you know, have completed that process. And there's, there's always something else that you can do to be a little bit better at what you do. And I think that's healthy. I think it also promotes a team atmosphere where I want to surround myself by people who know more about this, this, and this than me so that our team is better. And it's not just me who's got it all down by myself. No, I think that is tremendous wisdom. And I'm going to stay in this leadership role because you led perfectly into my next question. And do you think women make great leaders? And what kind of leader are you? I definitely think women make great leaders. I think that, you know, I try to see women and men as, as the same and equals in, in every way, especially professionally. Um, but there are some some differences, just inherent differences to, um, in, in general terms, how women perceive things. I think there's usually a little more compassion and other-centeredness in the way that women lead. And I think that makes them more inclusive and usually more team-based. Now, obviously, I'm not saying you know, there's a binary man-woman thing, but in my experience, I find that women are more willing to listen to others' opinions. If you know, you're in a meeting and you've got a table full of people, the female leader is more likely to listen to everyone else's opinion before she comes up with the you know, final verdict or her weighing in for herself, whereas I think males tend to want to get their opinion out there faster before they've had a chance to listen to everybody else. And I really think that that's important for leadership. I'm not sure that anyone is unilaterally you know, knows it all. So I think the team-based thing makes women uh, great leaders. The selflessness certainly does. You know, as as mothers, you know, fathers absolutely do a ton of work, but mothers are kind of the queens of multitasking and, uh, you know, trying to make it all work. And you've got all these things, you know, this giant you know, puzzle in your head that's constantly moving with all these gears at all times. And, um, those are skills that translate very well, I think, into leadership roles professionally. So, and that, you know, that, that kind of sums up the kind of leader that I, I try to be. I try to be a good listener. I try to be inclusive of all sorts of diverse perspectives. 
another important thing for leadership is to realize sometimes that I'm not the best messenger, um, that maybe something has to be communicated. I don't necessarily assume that I'm the one that has to do that. There may be somebody else on my team that's better at doing that. And so yielding in those cases, I think is important. So those are things that I try to work on. And back to the imposter syndrome, there's some things that I have to work on every day and I still have, still have much, much to learn, but uh, um, those are some of the overarching things. Well, it is an evolving process, isn't it? So as a leader and certainly as a physician, you are aware of the importance of self-care. So I'm curious, how do you take care of yourself being a mother of three who has such a demanding career? Yeah, I'm embarrassed about this because you asked this in interview. <laughs> I don't really do self-care. I mean, I guess I, I do in my own way, but you know, I don't have the traditional forms of self-care. I don't you know, take days off. I don't get massages. I don't you know, do mani-pedis. I don't you know, go on girls' trips. I just don't do that. But what's important to me is to have a job that I love. I am not, you know, when I wake up in the morning, it's not like, oh my gosh, I have to go to work. This is such a drudge and I can't wait for it to be done. I really am passionate about my career, the challenges, the people that I work with, all those things make me happy. My children are, you know, they're they're a lot of work sometimes, but man, they make me happy. And I have so much fun spending time with them. Even the stuff, you know, professionally I do outside of my work. um, I do a lot of work uh, um, on health policy with American College of Radiology. I love it. It's interesting to me. It challenges me. It makes me happy. So in many ways, things that other people see as just adding to my plate and you know, weighing me down is actually my form of self-care. And I think it would be very different if I didn't take joy in those things. So women often have a negative connotation of the word power. But you told me in a previous conversation that you like being in power and the ability it gives to make things happen. So share with us how you believe women can frame power to be a good thing. So I think that if power is viewed as one person being some kind of dictator and laying down the law and forcing everybody else to submit, then I think everybody could agree that that's not a great kind of power. But if you have enough power to, like you said, make changes and you see problems that can be fixed and you're a solution-minded person, then having the ability to make that happen is important. I mean, if you have zero power and you have all the best ideas in the world, you're not ever going to be able to implement any of those. So I think that if women could see or if anybody could see the end result of being in a position of power and using that to bring about the good in the world or the great ideas or the the things that you want to do to make positive changes, then power is more of kind of a means to an end instead of the end itself. And and to me, I think that's a different way of viewing it. I mean, I don't want to be in a leadership position just to have title. I want to do it because I can actually make some changes. I can do good work for our patients. I can make our practice successful and the people that work for here make it a really nice place to work. And not just because I want to be the leader of a group. You know, it's interesting because when I have interviewed some women that are in very powerful positions, when I ask them about power, they quickly deflect that and they will say, well, I don't really see myself as having power but I see myself as having the ability to be a decision maker and to be an influencer. And it's interesting how they twist that. When I push it further, I will say, well, why does power feel like a dirty word? And it's just what you said. So many women put it in the context of how they've seen men use power and being very dictator-like and, and using it to control people and manipulate people. And they do often miss the point that you just made, that without power, you cannot make the changes, nor can you have the money and the influence to really change the direction a company is going in or get the best for, in your case, your patients. 
I agree completely. I mean, it, I think most women, and maybe even most people, would kind of cringe at the word power. You have power. It just sounds yeah, like something that's selfish and uh, not for the good of, of more. But when, when you think about it correctly, just like you said, it's yeah, there's there's a different tone to it. So I would encourage women not to shy away from being called powerful or being in positions of power. I think it's really the best place to be to yeah, bring about the good that you want in the world. Yeah, it feels a whole lot better to have that influence yeah. as opposed to being on the bottom yeah. begging somebody to do what you want to have happen and what you see yeah. so clearly needs to happen for the good of everyone. Yeah. And it's interesting because for my my work here, I've tried to reframe it for women thinking of themselves being in power. And somehow that seems to feel better than saying you have power. Also, I tried to reframe it for them thinking of themselves being having impact. You know, women leaders want to have impact. We're not just doing it for fun. We want to make things happen. That's a good point. You also think about women outside the United States. When you talk about power, they're thinking about this, you know, their, their culture and government structure is very different than ours. And power may very well be a scary and, you know, intimidating thing to them. So, uh, yeah, there's probably some cultural differences in how that word is, is interpreted, too. So maybe framing it differently is exactly what what women need to be able to take that, to take the concept, but not actually the work. Right, exactly. And and be able to own that in a way that serves their mission to do good in the world. So I have one last question. I'm curious, I mean, you are a young woman that is doing incredible things in her career. You've got uh, lots of responsibility. You have power to make change, this type of thing. In the midst of all that, does self-doubt ever creep in? Yeah, I mean, I think that ties in with the imposter syndrome. There's always some self-doubt. Um, we all make mistakes in life. And I think that, you know, your response to those mistakes makes you better. But it also, you know, if I do something, you know, mess up something, you know, I internalize it a lot. I beat myself up about it. You, know, you should, should have done that. But you know, you're, you're, you're smarter than that. You're, you're better trained than that. You know? And then, you know, after, you know, it, it hurts for a while and you come back around, you realize everybody makes mistakes. But and to some extent, just like the imposter syndrome, to some extent, that's good for us. If you lose all self-doubt or all kind of, uh, I don't want to say self-deprecation, that's a little harsh. But if you don't take your mistakes seriously, then you're probably not going to be motivated to improve from them. From them. So to, to some extent, I think that's useful. As far as self-doubt of I'm not good enough or I can't do something, you mentioned this in the intro. I, I just, it was never part of my vocabulary as a child. And I, you know, my parents were very young when they had us. They didn't have any experience with babies and children. And I think they just didn't know what to expect. So my sister and I were always great in school. That's just what they thought it was supposed to be. And it never occurred to them that their you know, daughters couldn't do anything in the world they wanted. And that was passed on to us. I don't remember ever thinking that, you know, a boy should be better at math than me or a boy should be better at basketball than me. I mean, it just didn't occur to me. And then it really never has. So uh, on a large scale, this self-doubt isn't a big part of my personality on a smaller, like you know, analyzing mistakes level it is, but I, I try to make it productive. So when you make mistakes, which obviously all of us do, do you find that you get into this place of ruminating in your head about why did I yeah. do that? How, aren't I smart enough to, I shouldn't have done that, so on and so forth? Um, when I first started as a radiologist, I certainly did. When I was in training, you missed a finding on a CT scan or something, and then the attending comes back the next day and says, oh, no, you, you know, you missed this. And I would beat myself up about it and play it over and over in my head. And what could I have done differently? And why did I you know, do it this way? Um, as I've gotten older, I've tried to not focus on the, the beating myself up part and the more you know process improvement. What can I do differently? I don't want this to happen again. Can, is there something I can set up to make this not, you know, not be a mistake I'm going to make in the future? And so, yeah, I, I try to spin it into a way that's going to lead into improvement. 
and not so much just the spiral of you know, beating yourself up. And, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So, Dr. Lauren, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? You know, I think you know, we've talked about other things. I guess my advice in general would be to take those risks, to uh, not be afraid. Um, certainly, yeah, I think women have to get out of the mindset that there's things they can't do. I think that they need to try new things, be lifelong learners, constantly challenge themselves and, and find places that you know, things that make them happy. Not everybody needs to have power leadership positions, but everybody has contributions in certain ways. And to accept anything less than when you feel where you belong and where you're maximally challenged, nobody should do that. So I would encourage women not to give up and keep pursuing their dreams and take the risks when they present. Don't believe some of the things society tells them. Yeah, that's right. Dr. Lauren, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you had to squeeze me in between patients and readings and all the crazy things that are going on for you right now, particularly with the demands of the pandemic. But I really appreciate you taking time to share your wisdom with the world. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And Dr. Lauren is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 